by time period that we've entitled in God we trust and we put a question mark at the end of that sentence because I believe there's some question as to whether or not we as a a nation and as a a community of, of people really do trust in the Lord and so we've been talking about that we started last week we are trying to recover the foundations of Christian worldview again in our culture And I believe that if our nation or our culture is to be salvaged, if it's to be restored, it's going to be through the recovery of the Christian perspective. You know, just passing more legislation and laws will not make this nation right. I'm going to say that again. Just passing legislation and more laws will not turn this nation around and cause us suddenly to be right. We pass hundreds of bills yearly and we are still spiraling downward as a culture. Can I share this with you? And and you'll have to chew on this for a little bit because this is not the message series. But I'm going to share something with you that when even God established law, it would not change the human heart. Think about that. God instituted His law, and and just instituting law cannot change the human heart. The law will never make us righteous as a nation, as a people, or even as an individual. There's something more that has to take place. We have to be transformed. In Proverbs 23, verse 7, you should know this verse by now. We've been working with it these last couple of weeks. It started with, with Trey sharing about ungodly belief systems, and I picked up on it, and we're still moving forward. Proverbs 23, verse 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. However you think about yourself is eventually what you're going to turn out to be. It not only works that way for individuals, but it works that way for a nation. However, a nation thinks, How it thinks about itself, how it thinks about its future, how it thinks about its past. However a nation thinks, so it is as well. So we have to renew not only our individual minds in order that we might be fully successful as a person. In fact, if we want to be successful and prosperous and all that God has promised us that we can be, our minds personally have to be renewed. But, but I'm going to share this with you for us as a nation to once again become prosperous and successful and great. Not only in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God, we're going to have to renew the way we think. And I believe it must start in the house of God. The Bible says that judgment begins in the house of God. Well, if judgment begins in the house of God, then it seems to me that the renewing of the mind probably needs to start first in the house of God. This is going to be a challenge because we are inundated 24-7 with secularism and humanism being pumped through the media, the television, being pumped through our literature, the newspapers, being pumped through the entertainment world and Hollywood, being pumped through music and art, being pumped through our educational systems. We are inundated 24-7 with A worldview that is not the same as the one that God says we must have in order for us to be successful. And so the series that we're doing these couple of weeks is just my, I suppose, feeble attempt 
at trying to put a finger in a few of the leaks in the levee. Because if we don't do something, this nation is fixing to be in a flood. So this morning, last week, we talked about recovering the Christian mind. Now this morning, I want to talk about what I've entitled the source of liberty. The source of liberty. America, as most of you I'm quite sure are aware of, is supposed to be and is said to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. That's in our national anthem. We are supposed to be this city uh, sitting on a hill, this light shining brightly for all the world to see with regards to liberty. If you were to immigrate, in fact, years ago when people would immigrate to the United States of America, they would come through the port of New York and they would stop at Ellis Island and there would be the Statue of Liberty, which interestingly was given to us by the French. And they would come to the Statue of Liberty and that is where they'd be processed in order to immigrate into the United States. And, and I won't read to you the entire poem at the bottom of Lady Liberty, but one of the phrases in that poem speaks about the huddled masses yearning to be free. This nation was founded by people that sought liberty. In fact, they understood what that meant in the very core of their being. If you would begin to study what they sacrificed in order to embrace the concept of liberty, it would actually take you aback. However, 230 years later, in our modern day era, here on July the 5th, 2009, we have lost the true meaning of liberty. You know, it's interesting, for 150 years prior to the Revolutionary War, now get this in your mind, get the dates in your mind, if the Revolutionary War was about 1775 when it started, 150 years prior to the Revolutionary War, up until the late 1800s, now we're talking 1870s, 80s, and 90s, the ministers of communities, the clergy of the community, would clarify and would apply the Bible to relevant issues that the colonies and eventually the states would be facing. And there were three ways, three specific ways that the clergy would begin to teach the community. There was the first way, which was called the weekday lecture. The weekday lecture was on one day a week where the ministers of the colonies and later the states would actually lecture the governors and lecture the legislatures on issues of the community, the colony or the state and how the Bible would address those issues. The representatives would listen to the pastor or the clergy member that was sharing these facts and then they would act on the subject matter of that particular message. Is that not amazing? Can I just share with you that might have helped us here in South Carolina here recently? The weekday lecture. There was a second form that they did this in. The election sermon, they called it. The election sermon was done faithfully up to the late 1800s. The clergy would actually have a forum in the community somewhere where they would begin to espouse their opinions on the upcoming election. They were looked to, they were even expected to influence elections. 
Now you have to remember prior to 1960, there was no 501c3. That meant that ministers would stand behind their pulpit and they would clearly and unabashedly endorse policies and candidates that were running for public office because they understood that there was no fragmentation, there was no compartmentalization of the Bible from everyday ordinary work and society. God is God of all. He is Lord of all. In fact, I'll just tell you the little, I didn't have this in my notes, but you understand that that 501c3 thing the IRS does to churches nowadays came from Lyndon Johnson because there were ministers in Texas who did not like, by virtue of the scripture, some of the policies that he was about ready to implement. And because he had a hard time forgiving people, he instituted the 501c3, which basically said to churches, you could no longer endorse political candidates. Now, that may be a good thing to do as far as wisdom in church life. It may be a good thing to do. But I'm here to tell you, it's not right for the government to tell us who or who we cannot begin to declare. Is good policy makers. Or good leadership. But that's what they do. That's how they handled it up to the 1900s. There was the artillery message. This was one of the third ways. The artillery sermon would, would, would be when clergy would be invited to speak to the military. They would come in and speak to the military and they would teach them about issues of war and issues of self-defense from the scripture. They would teach them how war was sinless in the defense of a nation and they would talk to the soldiers about the sin of cowardice. I thought that was an amazing thing. They would literally teach the military out of the Bible what God had to say about fighting and about war. Now, the average adult in colonial America listened to about 15,000 hours of instruction of Christian worldview and application in a greatly shorter lifespan than we enjoy today. You understand, people didn't live then as long as we live today. And in their short lifespan, they got 15,000 hours of instruction. Today, I just figured up, just got the calculator out. And today, I figured up if a person from age 12 to age 70 gets two hours of instruction a week, and that's pretty generous. But let's say they get two hours of instruction faithfully every week, that adds up to only 6,000 and 32 hours. And we know today that most of what gets shared is rather shallow. So what I may be doing may seem a little unusual in 2009. In fact, can I just share some of what I'm doing today? If we don't get a hold of where our nation is going, is going to be declared illegal. You understand that if I preach against certain behaviors, sinful behaviors, you understand that there's hate crime legislation pending that could cart me off to jail and you may have to come visit me down on, you know, Leeds Avenue. You, you, you understand that's some of what that is going on out there. But it may be unusual in 2009, but I will assure you in 1776, this kind of stuff was expected. We need to understand, again, the source of liberty. 
The source of our liberty is not the government. The source of our liberty is not the Supreme Court. It is not the legislatures. But the source of our liberty, listen to me, is the Lord Himself. He is the author of liberty. Now let me just read, I'm going to read several things out of the Bible and and, and, and then, God forbid, I'm going to read a little bit out of an original document of this nation. But follow me quickly. I believe they're going to put it on the screen overhead. So follow me quickly. Psalm 119, verse 44. Psalm 119, beginning with verse 44. Listen, it says this. So shall I keep your law continually forever and ever, the psalmist says. And I will walk at liberty. Now think about this for just a second. How do you walk at liberty? You keep his law continually forever and ever. He says, for I seek your precepts. I will speak of your testimonies also before kings. And I will not be ashamed. So the psalmist says, he says, I walk at liberty because I obey your word and I will declare it to kings and to governors and to presidents and to senators and to city council and to county council. We will declare it and we will not be ashamed. John 8, 36. You're going to recognize some of these passages. I'm hoping that the Holy Ghost will illuminate them in a brand new way. John 8 and 36, it says, Therefore, if the Son, meaning Jesus, makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So who makes us free? Jesus. Jesus makes us free. 2 Corinthians, keep moving with me. 2 Corinthians three seventeen. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is... Now, you see, if you don't want the Holy Ghost around, slavery shows up. But if the Spirit of the Lord is invited in, the Bible says, there's liberty. Galatians 5.1 It says, Stand fast, therefore... In the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now in all of these particular passages, and I could go reading all morning, I can assure you. The source of our liberty is God himself. In fact, let's just, let's just take out the nebulous God. The source of our liberty is Jesus. Are you hearing me? God doesn't make our culture mad. Jesus does. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the emancipator. Jesus is the one that brings true liberty in any situation. And our founders understood that the source of true liberty was not derived in government. It was not derived in the institutions of man, but liberty was derived from God and God alone. That is why they wrote in the Declaration of Independence. Now, a lot of people, and just listen these days, they don't want to talk about the Declaration of Independence. They always want to talk about the Constitution. Now, hear me real quickly. I'm going to give you a real history lesson here. They'll say to you these words. Well, the Constitution is not a religious document. Therefore, therefore, religion had nothing to do with the establishment of this nation. It had nothing to do with the writing of the Constitution. And that is a sly, slick inaccuracy. You read the Constitution, and while it is true what they say, 
They didn't write the name of Jesus in it. They didn't write God's name in it. They didn't have reference to anything really about God. You read the first few sentences of the Constitution and it will talk about how the Constitution was to secure, then they put it in capitalization, the blessings of liberty. Now, unless, you be, unless you've already defined liberty, that isn't going to make any sense. Liberty, liberty is not just this ethereal concept that exists out here, which we think these days. Liberty, we just think liberty is I get to go vote. Or that liberty is I get, you know, I, I basically get to move about my society relatively freely. We don't understand liberty. We don't understand the source of liberty. And the Constitution doesn't make any sense unless you understand the Declaration of Independence. Because it is here they define liberty. It is here they define tyranny. It is here they begin to enumerate the issues surrounding the whole concept of, of what it means to be free. Listen to this. It says, when in the course of human events... It becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitles them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind require that they should declare the cause which impel them to this separation. Listen, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And they go on to say that any other form of government really borders on tyranny. But the point that they made in the declaration, they declared to the world, they declared to the greatest superpower that the world had ever known at that time was this, that we are equal and that we are endowed by a creator with liberty. The king didn't give us liberty. Great Britain didn't give us liberty. Washington, D.C. doesn't give us liberty. The Constitution doesn't give us liberty. The Constitution merely sets up boundaries as to how to keep others from usurping our liberty. But we have been so twisted in, in, in the last 40, 50, 60 years that we have lost all of this. In fact, the battle cry of the Revolutionary War... Do you, do you remember like at the Alamo? Everybody remembers this one. Remember how when Sam Houston was going after Santa Ana, everybody was hollering, remember the Alamo? You remember that in history class, don't you? This is one they don't tell you in history class. That the battle cry of the revolutionary soldiers, the colonists, the Americans who were fighting the British, their battle cry was this, no king but Jesus. Did you hear that in history class? I bet not, because there's a subtle, insidious happening that's taking place to try to tear away from us these foundations. They're trying to, they're, they're, it's the enemy behind it all is Satan himself, who's trying to make us think that somehow our benevolent government is the author of our freedom. It is not the government, it is Jesus who is the author of our freedom. It is He who sets us free. It is He who brings life into our system. 
And the enemy's blinding our eyes to these things as a country. And it is now time for some of us to begin to get our eyes focused right again. Let me talk just for a moment on what I call how this corruption came about. The corruption of the concept of liberty. The corruption of the concept of liberty. Freedom and liberty are the most misunderstood and corrupted words in our current culture. These words are overused and abused. In fact, to me, the word freedom and liberty is about tantamount to how we use the word love. We love everything. We love our dog. We love our car. We love our boat. We love our wife. We love our parents. We love a TV show. My God, we use love for everything. We love, we love, we love, until finally love means nothing. We fall in love, we fall out of love, and that's the same way with liberty and freedom. Much of what we call freedom is but a corruption of our desire to have a license to live outside of appropriate boundaries and without accountability. Politicians, because they have removed God from their consciousness, now use the word freedom to advance all their agendas. Listen to them. Now, you may agree or you may disagree. My point is not to make a political statement. My point is just to unveil what's going on. There are people, when they want to go, when they want to have a war on foreign soil, they'll stand up and tell us that we are exporting freedom. We are espousing freedom. We have people who exercise all sort of perverted behaviors. And they'll stand up and say, we have a right to be free. We'll abort babies in the name of freedom. We'll do all sorts of things, all in freedom's name. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat. We start standing up saying freedom, 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 freedom. But we use freedom like we use the word love. Our economic system is said to be a free market. Our democracy is said to be the free world. We work in what is supposed to be a free enterprise system. We all use the term freedom, but we don't get what freedom is. The American concept of freedom was different in its original conception than anything that had existed before. I mean, the French people had a revolution. In fact, de Tocqueville would, would remark that when the French had their revolution, they saw religion and the monarchy so tied together that when the people shook off the bands of tyranny, they shook off both the monarchy and religion. To this very day, France is a very secularized society. But yet they had a revolution and they espoused freedom. The Russians had a revolution. They saw the proletariat and the bourgeois rose up and they wanted to shake off the, the capitalism. And so they embraced Marxism and socialism because they saw in capitalism tyranny. And they say that they were free. So you have to understand America and its concept of freedom was derived from a different understanding and location. To understand America, the best read you could ever go to is the one by Alexis de Tocqueville, the French political philosopher, who in the 1800s, when he came trying to understand American democracy and how it was different from the French, wrote so many interesting words. One passage went like this. He said, the first thing I noticed in America was the religious aspect. The genius of America was not in her natural resources, but rather her pulpits Aflame with power did I find her secret. America is great because America is good. 
if she ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. It's interesting that the French and the Americans had their revolutions at ostensibly the self-same time. I find it fascinating that through the years, the French have continually struggled, yet America has seemed to be blessed immeasurably. Why is that? It's because when the French went after their freedom, they went after freedom as man being the center of all liberty. When America went after her freedom, it was God who was the center of all liberty. And you just have to look and judge the fruit. American liberty was based in the knowledge that Jesus Christ is the freedom giver. He is the emancipator. Have you ever noticed that when Christians go to foreign countries and they go preach the gospel in other nations, that when those nations begin to embrace Christian principles, we find greater and greater liberty and that nation is blessed? You begin to see hospitals being built, orphanages being built, schools being built. You see wells being dug, people being fed. It's amazing when Christians go to a country, how it begins to prosper and how it begins to just blossom. But you send Islam to a country. I don't know who wants to say this on Fox or MSNBC or any other public forum, but you send Islam to a nation and you watch it turn into a desert. Why is that? It's because Mohammed has no power to set anyone free. Mohammed will bind you up. He will enslave you. Muhammad looked at his followers and said that you need to kill yourself in order to somehow win the infidels. When Jesus said, you don't have to kill yourself, I'll die for you and we'll bring in the infidels. We need a little twist, tweak. Well, no, we don't. We need a brain transplant. We have lost... The true source of our freedom. And the further we move away from God, the further we move from His ways, His Word, His precepts. I know people talk about separation of church and state. Listen, it was never intended to get God out of government. That whole, The First Amendment was to keep the government out of God's business. Because Jesus is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. The Bible says that the government rests on His shoulder. No, 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 no. The government, the government isn't going to tell the Lord how He is going to work in the earth. No, 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 no. It's the Lord who needs to get back into the halls of the government. But we move further and further away. And this is the interesting thing. As we move further and further away, we keep thinking we're becoming more and more free. Yes, we're... We're alienating ourselves from God and we think we're getting free from, from the restraints of old, worn out arguments. We're being freed from all the old puritanical ways of our forefathers. In fact, we have some who are embracing Europe and are embracing the way Europe does things. Let me tell you, Europe went through the dark ages. Europe is as dead as a doornail at some levels when it comes to Christianity. I don't want European model. I want Jesus to get back in the center of what He got started here in our nation. 
But the more we think we're getting free, the more enslaved we're becoming. And what do we do? We just start legislating again. Well, we obviously need more laws, more laws, more laws. Oh, or we got to get our hands on it. We've got to control it. And if we control it, then everything will be more fair, more equitable. We are, we, we are losing our senses in America. Now, how did all this take place? How did this corruption get into our culture? Now, I was reading a few years back a guy by the name of Arnold Toynbee. Toynbee once said that every city, every nation, and every civilization has what he calls a soul. It's interesting. You not only as a human being have a soul, and you remember what the soul is, don't you? A soul is what? Your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's the way you think, the way you act. It's the way you feel. Well, Toynbee said that every civilization has a soul. And I started to think about that. And the more I thought about that, the more I believed it to be true. People groups have a way of thinking. People groups have a way of feeling. People groups have a way of acting just in much the same way as an individual does. And when I heard that, it struck me that a nation is impacted in much the same way individuals are impacted. What I mean by that is, is that, is that if there has come corruption into the mind of an individual, if an individual has lost his mind or his mind has got twisted or his mind has turned reprobate and you begin to analyze how an individual would lose his mind or get his mind changed, that you will find that some of the very same patterns can also be used against the nation at large. If a nation has lost its way or it's been deceived, then it probably happened in much the same way it happens to any one of us. Now, I don't have time to go through all the lists and all the ways that our mind gets, gets twisted or it gets turned or it begins to go through the reprobate status. But let me just give you two things, two ways that our national thinking has negatively been remolded. This is two ways that I think we can be ever vigilant because I think it's Satan's really master plan in two major ways. Number one is he uses national trauma. What's the open door into our national life that causes Satan to come in and gets our mind going other directions? I believe he can use national trauma. Whenever trauma comes to an individual, it will do usually one of two things. If you face trauma in your life, one of two things will probably happen to you. Number one, it will either drive you closer to God. Or number two, it will drive you further away from him. That's what trauma does. There's usually no middle ground with trauma. Trauma either makes us reach out and embrace God all the more, or it causes us to reject him and walk away from him. That has been the story of our nation. Some of the greatest revivals of our nation, some of the greatest moves of God that have taken place in history have happened before, during, and after wars and great traumatic events. I could take you through history and I could show you great national traumas. And in the midst of that trauma, we cried out as a nation for God. We asked Him to be a part of what was going on. I'm going to mention what what took place here at the end. I'm going to mention what... The Congress did before the Revolutionary War. It, it, it literally 
amazes me what we did in those days and what we just are so reluctant to do in our current era. But what usually happened was when these traumas would come, we would reach out for God and, and God would come. And some of the greatest revivals that ever took place were during those wartime periods where people's hearts were soft. I mean, you bomb the hang out of something and that'll soften your heart if you have a lick of sense. But what happens through the years is, is that Satan too uses these traumas to begin to change the way we think. He's an insidious, insidious enemy. When, when John F. Kennedy in 1963 was assassinated and, and, and there was this national trauma and then when Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968, it opened these wounds in us again. And we didn't cry out to God during those particular times. We got mad and we got bitter and we turned into ourselves. And out of the 60s, we began to experiment and we went other ways. And, and you may think me old and a fogey and you may think me to be silly, but I'm really interested in how all of a sudden the doors to our nation opened up to all the European Rock sounds like the Beatles and their LSD and, you know, Lucy in the sky with diamonds and, you know, hey Jude and I get high with a little help from my friend and our, our wounds are open as a nation and suddenly we have the 60s generation that enters into sorcery. That's what drug use is, you know, sorcery. And all of a sudden, we're, 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 our national psyche is, is beginning to turn and, and these people don't reach out to God. And all of a sudden, as they get older, they go to school and they get their degrees and they become our professors and they become our teachers and they become our government officials until finally we've got a generation of sorcerers. I know, you don't believe me and you think I've lost my... You, I, you'll walk out and go, that's just preacher. He just doing what preachers do. Then you figure it out yourself. Sorcery is in leadership in our nation. All of this became the soil for hate, for suspicion, for bitterness, for unforgiveness. The enemy moves in. He moves in during the Vietnam era when we're losing our young men and our young women. And, and he opens up these wounds out of these losses. It changes our perspective President Nixon loses his mind and he does the whole Watergate thing. And so we won't trust anybody anymore. And no one would ever justify evil or crimes. But all of these events caused us to become skeptical and cynical. And we lost our identity as a nation. We no longer pray. We no longer carry our Bibles. We don't like Christian symbols in our culture anymore. We fuss about Christmas and nativity scenes and can we sing Christmas carols anymore? Th this generation says, get it out of my face. I don't want it anymore. And I'm telling you that is so foreign from where we were when this nation started. National trauma. The second way that, that, that thinking gets twisted or turned is through what I call relentless re-education. Relentless re-education. I, I found out something years ago that I'm going to share with you right now. It has served me well. I hope it serves you well too. Listen very carefully. Just because somebody got a book published doesn't make it true. 
I don't care how many footnotes they put in it. Just because there's a documentary that's released on television doesn't make it true. Folks, I'm a history major. I, I've got a, I'm not, this isn't to impress you, it's just kind of to tell you I'm just not shooting my mouth off. I got a master's degree and I got a doctor's degree and it's all in the area of history. And I want you to know right now that I could bring home public school textbooks in history and I could point out lies. That are just lies. And what I mean by lie is this. It's, it's that when you only tell a partial truth, it's still a lie. I, I mean, I went to Disney here recently for a vacation, went through Spaceship Earth. And I'm looking at all these things they're doing. And I remember it wasn't until I got by the Gutenberg Bible Press. Well, they didn't use the term Bible, by the way. It was the Gutenberg Press. And they tell you all about the Gutenberg Press and how it was significant and important in the, in the transition of disseminating information. And never once did they tell you that the whole reason for the invention was to print Bibles. It wasn't just to print newspapers. That's what they think. They think that that, that press was invented so textbooks could go out. That, that printing press, the only textbook it had maybe were commentaries on the Bible. Beside Bibles themselves. But we go into our culture, whether it be to our, our public schools or even our universities, that undermine the very things that cause greatness. It irritates me to this day that, that people would send their, their impressionable college freshmen into schools with professors whose whole joy in life is to somehow shake through their through their intellectualism, the foundations, the, the, the spiritual Christian foundations of these young people in order that they can mold them into something different. I find it fascinating that you can send Christian young people to college and they come out some way different. Down here at the College of Charleston, you could have a professor in philosophy that's shaking up his whole freshman class through his philosophical discussion and arguments, and he's really, really sharp with a bunch of freshmen. I always wonder why they don't ask me. Come on, I'm just one of these old, you know, fossil dinosaurs, a relic of a day gone by. I'm just one of these dumb country bumpkins that fell off the turnip truck here in Charleston that really doesn't know much of what he's talking about. Why don't you take me on? Well, I'll tell you why he won't do it. Because I won't roll over as easy as college freshmen who don't know all that much yet. Most of the Ivy League schools in America started as conservative training schools to put out ministers in America. That's the reason Harvard exists. Princeton was started out of a revival. Now they make students infidels. What's happened? What has happened? It's because we have lost the true source of liberty. Now I'm going to be honest with you. This, that's just my introduction. Some of you are going, oh my, oh my Lord. It's my introduction to next week. Because I got to lay some things out in order to get to the good news. See, I could spend a lot of time talking to you about how 
this culture is going swimming down the toilet. In fact, I told Trace that, that if I were to run for a political office right now, my, 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 my political slogan and my bumper sticker would say this, it's time for a bowel movement. Isn't that true? It's true. It's true. Flush the whole thing down the toilet. That's where they're living. I don't care. I'm an equal opportunity offender. I'm a nonpartisan offender. I've got a list I wrote back on my desk of Republicans that I am up to here with. We won't even get to the Democrats. Because we have lost our minds. But there's good news in all of this. I hope you come next week. There's some good news. Tell your friends to come. Tell them he won't be nearly as surly next week. He's just a little surly this week. But next week's good news. Because here it is. Jesus wins. He wins. His church wins. I can take you to the most incredibly difficult time in the history of the church when they were under the crucible of torture with the Roman Empire and they were winning. We win. So don't, don't, don't walk out of here and go, oh man, that was, what are we going to do? I, I, I just say he's surly. He just, he just had a burr under his saddle and he had to get it off his chest and it's just the introduction. All right, we will end on a much higher note. But it's going to take me some time because you know, in your lifetime, I'm only going to have 6,000 hours, maybe. That means if you get here every Sunday... That's true, and Wednesday. Now, if we were in colonial America, there ain't no TV and nothing else, so you'd probably come more. But we only have, think about that, 15,000 hours is what they got back then, maybe 6,000, maybe. And we all know that, that the whole population is not in the house of God on Sunday. We also know that a good portion of the population are sitting in church services that are just going there, there. Or that are teaching them something that's not even there. So we've got a lot of work to do, don't we? And it's going to take some time. And you've got to say to yourself, am I going to invest some time? Am I going to be a solution or am I going to be a part of the problem? Am I going to be, be an answer in this generation, and I know what you're saying, you're saying, what can I do? I will tell you next week, there's far more that you can do in the eyes of God than probably you're aware of right now. But we can do something. I'm telling you, God will whittle armies like he did with Gideon from 30,000 to 300, and he will win battles. It doesn't take a lot. It just takes the committed. It's going to take some time to begin to rebuild and rewire our thinking in order that we can begin to rewire the way our nation thinks. 
If we don't understand the principles that God uses to make individuals great, then how in the world can we apply that nationally or statewide? So we've got to get this in our system. Yes, God wants to bless you. Yes, He wants to heal you. Yes, He wants to honor you. Yes, He wants to promote you. Yes, He wants to exalt you. Yes, He has a great plan for your life, but it isn't going to happen until He becomes the source of everything. And so we got to get this in our system. And if we don't become the solution in our culture, then folks, time is running out. Somebody's got to be the solution. Somebody's got to start being the answer. God's hand will not be stayed forever. Let me just share this with you. The Bible says that God is long-suffering. It doesn't say He's eternally suffering. His patience is amazing, but His patience will run out. I know that there are prophecies being released that quite clearly indicate that things can get a whole lot worse than they are right now. You cannot ceremonially tip your hat to God while practically you're thumbing your nose at Him. We cannot strip our nation at the very least of the memorial stones of His presence in our buildings, in our parks, in our public squares and think that there's no repercussion. When Israel removed the vestiges of Yahweh and began to replace them with, the, with the, the, the idols and things of Baal, there was a repercussion. In fact, God said for him to move in the nation of Israel again and for Israel to get right, he said, you must tear down the high places. You can't mock God. You cannot mock even his church or his people. Not that I think we're perfect in any way, shape, or form. The church is filled with human beings and we do things inconsistently. And imperfectly. But you just can't mock it. Mock God. Mock His word. Mock His ways. And think that somehow it's really not going to have any repercussion. The Bible says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And I've tried to give our president every benefit of the doubt. And anyone who knows, and I mean this sincerely... I have, I have ejected from partisan politics. They aren't going to have to worry about me endorsing Republicans or Democrats. I'm waiting to hear them start endorsing God. But I'm just here to tell you, I'm going to, I'll speak to Governor Sanford and call, call it as I see it with him. And I'm going to call it as I see it with our president as well. When your first act as president is to fund abortions with tax dollars worldwide, there's going to be a repercussion. To not even try to stop at least partial birth abortion. Barbaric! It is barbaric! He appoints the governor from my home state of Kansas who vetoed legislation to stop the barbaric act he appoints her Secretary of Health and Human Services. I'm telling you, it's, it's not without repercussion. He doesn't have to worry about anything for me. I'll keep praying for his protection. He's going to need me. When homosexuality is invited to the White House, and the gay 
and lesbians as well as the transsexuals and transgenders are told that they will love this administration. And the old, worn-out arguments of other people. Well, well, who does he mean other people? Like Christians? He says that are slowly fading will bring to them a new day. He says you're going to love this administration. When he goes to a Muslim nation and declares that we are not a Christian nation... Do not think for a moment there's not a repercussion. You may like him. You may have voted for him. And I can understand probably why. I had the highest of hopes and aspirations. And, and, and it's not political. I'm just saying we can't do these things without repercussion. I don't care if you're the president. It is time somebody called people of power on the carpet. I mean, you can't do this without repercussion. It take, doesn't take a prophet to say God will not be long-suffering with this forever. America, listen to me, America itself is not the exception. We thought for years somehow we're the exception because we, were the, we had the biggest club on the block. And anybody try to mess with us, we just club them to death. I'm just telling you that day will quickly end if we don't understand that our protection is not in horses and chariots. But in the Lord our God. I love the Lord. And I want you to know I love my nation. And I pray for all of our leaders. And really, believe it or not, there is great compassion in this surly body today. But my allegiances are set. There is no king but Jesus. Government's not king. Corporations aren't king. I am not king. You're not king. Jesus is king. On July the 20th, 1775, as the beginnings of the Revolutionary War were just starting, the Second Continental Congress issued a call. The call of that Second Congress was to the U.S. citizenry. There were only three million of us at the time. But the call to the citizenry, the three million, were to go to the house of God and to get on your knees and to begin to beseech the Lord for his hand in the war that they were about ready to enter into. Later, Samuel Adams would write that the prayers of the citizenry who went to the house of God were of immeasurable help, he said, in the victory that we would later have over the British Empire. Tony Perkins is the president of the Family Research Council. And he's just asked as many who would to get on their knees on this Sunday in churches all over America. They're, they're calling it the call to fall. Would you fall on your knees? And would you begin to intercede and cry out to God? And would you begin to beseech Him even as they did in those early days of our infant nation and they saw the hand of god move were though were they perfect people no hey were our founders perfect people no 56 signers of the declaration of independence listen to me 56 signers of the declaration of independence we've been led to believe that most of them were deists or atheists two of them may have had shaky spiritual backgrounds 
29 of them graduated from seminary. That's a lot of atheists coming out of seminary. Don't you believe everything you hear? These men, while they may not have been fervent, passionate, tongue-talking, charismatic, evangelical Christians, let me tell you something. They understood the providence, the sovereignty of God in their midst. They understood these things. Even Even those, Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, so far as we know, never made a confession of Christ. But you know what? He was best friends with George Whitfield. And Benjamin Franklin would often say these words. He says, every time Whitfield speaks, there's something that happens in my heart. And it was Franklin who said to the Congress, he said, as we get in the Constitutional Convention, it was Franklin who said, gentlemen, if we don't understand that it was God who brought us through this war, then we're in trouble if we expect to start this nation without him. And so he said, from this time forward, before Congress starts, we need to pray. That was the only one of two people you could even make a little bit of a case for that didn't have a fervent faith. And he said, we needed to pray. So this morning, we're going to do that. We're just going to take a few minutes before we end, and we're going to pray again. Let me just share this, and I'm done. On Thursday, June 18th, I met with a group of 11 pastors in Columbia, South Carolina. And we just began to pray. We just gathered because we felt like it was time to pray. And so we gathered at the Hampton Inn and we prayed. And you get 11 pastors praying. And I mean, we, I think we, sh- uh, we had to have shut the lobby down. I know the breakfast area got all their food blessed. <laughs> because it spilled over. We were, it was not quiet. It was not quiet prayer. And I thought to myself, praise God. I have to hear that heathen gross music. I have to hear people dropping their swear words all around me. It's about time somebody heard pastors pray. And we prayed. And we prayed for everything imaginable. We prayed mostly that God would work in our state and shake our state. And God would send revival to our state. And I'm telling you, on that Thursday when we got done praying, we had no idea of what was happening in that Friday and Saturday, but that's when the whole debacle in our government began to unfold. I am not so presumptuous as to think that that we were the cause of all that unveiling, but I am providentially thinking enough to say this to you, that if 11 pastors can shake a state What could churches all over America do? What could just one congregation do if we just battered heaven with our intercession? See, we don't think in these terms. We think think prayer is almost like the last thing we should do. Maybe when it becomes the only thing we can do, maybe it's then we'll see the power of it. So here's what I want done. I want all the musicians, they should know that they're coming back. So you guys hurry and slip back. I want the congregation... Right now, well, don't don't stand. I guess I'm not going to have you stand, but but this is what I want the congregation to do as they're beginning to move. I know some of you may not have you may have a physical problem and you can't turn around where you're at and kneel. I, I, so I, I, you can remain seated if you'd like. Some of you, I'd like for you to slip out and why don't we gather around the front at the wells of the church? I want people praying all over the room here. I, I want some down front. I want us on our knees. 
I want some of you down front. I, I want some of you to remain at your seats. You can just turn around right in your seat if you would. Please don't be stiff-necked and say, I just don't want to get on my knees. Come on. I, I'm talking about you may not have a nation as you know it in the not-too-distant future. And that is not being over-the-top fear-mongering. That's just the way it is. I'm going to mention to you next week the steps of decline in order that we can understand the steps to recovery. But I'm telling you, we cannot for very much longer thumb our noses in the face of God. And so we as the church, if judgment starts at the house of God, then intercession needs to start in the house of God as well. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Just find that chord riff, hear us from heaven. Come on, I want you to begin right wherever you are right now. You may be in your seat, you may be down front. But I want you to begin to first off, just cry out and begin to repent. If there was any any little attitude or great attitude, if there's hidden sin, but you begin to repent and say, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I got to get my act together. I, I can't expect my nation to get its act together if my act isn't together. I can't expect my nation to serve the Lord if I'm not serving the Lord. So begin to cry out for your own personal repentance. And as you're crying out, enter into a moment. Just ask God for forgiveness. I believe it's like Leviticus. I'm trying to remember now in the 20, like 25, 44, something like that. It says that if we'll ask forgiveness and cry out for the sins of our fathers and our forefathers. I'm not saying you're culpable for what they did, but we need to say, Lord, we recognize some of what our, our, our parents did and our grandparents did. That, that took this nation in another direction. And Lord, we're crying out and saying, forgive us. Come on, this is your prayer time. It's not just pastor's prayer time. It says, if my people. It didn't say, if my pastor. Not if my shepherds. If my people, which are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Folks, this is the church's business. There may have been merit in handing out voter guides and working precincts. There may have been some merit in that, but I'll guarantee you our primary purpose has got to be to intercede and to pray until God moves. Come on, do you want to see God move in your household? Oh God, we cry out, move in our household. Set us free. Oh God, move in our cities. And set us free. Oh God, move in our state. We really need you in the state of South Carolina. And set us free. Oh God, we pray for our nation. Lord, Lord, melt our hearts. Soften us. Lord, I pray that, that we would receive that work so it wouldn't have to be done through catastrophes or traumas or terrorism attacks. Oh God, I know, I know that you've been trying to get our attention. And we've not been listening. We've turned from you. 
But I cry out and say, oh God, could you spare us and give us an opportunity to change and to turn to you because of our heart's desire. Lord, we confess the wickedness and the evil that is within our borders and boundaries. Lord, we intercede right now. We intercede right now, Lord, for our our, our citizenry and our culture. I intercede right now, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of men and women. Lord, I intercede right now, Lord, not because we hate or we curse, but Lord, because we love humanity. You love people, Lord. You love them so much you sent your only son to die for them that they might be free. And Lord, let that compassion well up in us as we intercede. Not that they might be smitten through our prayers, but Lord, that they they might be turned from their ways and come to the knowledge of the truth. Hallelujah. Come on, keep interceding. We're going to take just a minute or two. This has got to be more than just a, a quick prayer ritual and then we're gone not to think about it anymore come on folks I'm here to tell you Charleston listen to me Charleston is overdue for an earthquake I believe God could get our attention real quick but we cry out for mercy Lord, I pray right now for those who are in authority. Lord, I pray for our president. Lord, within him, there was such hope. Because he could influence and because he could speak. Lord, there was such hope that this could be a moment of of incredible impact and change. But Lord... Lord, some of what I see cannot please you. So I pray right now for our president, Barack Obama. I pray, oh God, that your Holy Spirit would move through that White House. Yes, Lord, I pray that you would protect him and that you would keep him. I pray for his family, that you would protect them and keep them, Lord, safe. We want no harm to fall them. But Lord, I pray an awakening begins Lord, I pray his advisors would be awakened in the name of Jesus. I pray that the tongue of the serpent would be cut off in Jesus' name. I pray for our senators and our representatives. Lord, I pray for governors and for state legislators. I pray for our city council and our county council. Lord, I'm tired of seeing their faces on the front cover of newspapers because of whatever it is they've stumble-bumbled into. Lord, revive us again. We aren't throwing stones, oh God. Pull the beam out of our eyes. Lord, take the beam away from us. 
Oh Lord, let the land cry out unto God. I pray for the pastors of America. I pray that a flame gets started again in the pulpits of America. I pray that voices rise up, that prophets come into the land. Oh God, slap us. Knock the lethargy out of us. Knock the apathy out of us. We have lost our first love. And we repent from that. What we can do is full gospel people, we can begin to pray. When we don't know what to pray anymore, we can pray in the Spirit. Come on, let's begin to do even that. Keep crying out. Pray in the Spirit. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Come on, we got to tap into the power of intercession and the power of prayer. Send the fire, O God. Send your fire.
Well, that's a great sound. I can, I can finally hear the sound of intercession in the house of God. Let me tell you, his arm is not short and his ear is not deaf. That he cannot hear and that he will not act. The one thing I know about God is this, is that is that it's never so far gone that he cannot step in and turn it around. Come on, we're not leaving thinking that somehow or another it's all it's all just falling apart and we're just praying to hold on I'm not praying to hold on I'm praying to go forward I'm praying to rebuild I'm praying to restore to rekindle to rewire to renew we're not waving a white flag there is no surrender Hear us from heaven, 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 One last thing and we're done. It's going to take fervent, passionate intercession. We're we're not the United States of the 1770s. We're not the United States of the 1870s or the 1970s. This is 2009. And, 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 And let me just tell you, there is a fervent spirit in the earth with regards to iniquity. There is a fervent spirit in the earth with regards to rebellion. And the only way this will be changed 
is when passion comes back to the people of God. We've got to get passionate again. Don't, don't fear passion. We're, we're, we're not the crazy ones. We're, we are not the cult. We are just getting our passion back and we're getting it involved with our intercession. And I'm telling you, I could begin to feel it. I could feel spiritual shifting beginning to happen. The enemy doesn't like that. And he's going to fight every step of the way. But folks, that's why you've got to get it in your mind right now. It doesn't matter how many battles you face. doesn't matter how many wars you get thrown into. We win. We win. The psalmist said, I've seen the righteous go down six, eight, even seven times, but they shall rise again. Knock me down. I'm going to be back with that silly grin on my face. But don't fear passion. It is, it is time. It is time to let your passion be the magnet. Come on, we're calling forth passionate people. Lord, send them from the east and the west, from the north and the south, the passion of your people. Lord, keep it ignited in us. That, Lord, you're calling us as a generation to something as significant as the generation in 1775. We take that call seriously. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that we're reaching people. Thank you that we're restoring hope. Thank you that we're rebuilding lives. And thank you that we're reclaiming a culture. Let me tell you something. You won't ever regret every, every minute you spend praying, every, every hour you spend serving, every dollar you release, you will never regret it for all eternity that you invested your life into something passionate. Never let it be said that this nation went down the tubes on my watch. Not my generation. It's not. And not on my watch. If it goes down the tubes, it's going to be with Kevin Baird yelling and screaming and hollering and waving. Not on my watch. Come on, you need to say the same thing. Everyone say, not on my watch. Come on, that's you too. Not on your watch. Not if you have anything to do with it. Your family, if your family goes, just say to yourself, my family isn't going to hell. Not on my watch. My neighbors are not going to hell. Not on my watch. Not on my watch. You can't drag them to church. I understand that. You can't make anybody do anything, but doggone it, you can pray. And passionately intercede. And the hound of heaven, the Holy Ghost himself, will do remarkable things. Father, thank you this morning that there's passion in the house of God. Thank you, Lord, that you're turning America around. We decree it in the name of Jesus. America is coming back to its foundation. 
South Carolina is coming back to its foundations. Charleston is coming back to its foundations. We decree, we prophetically release that decree in the name of Jesus. And thank you, Lord, this morning that we sensed in the Spirit that you're changing and doing and moving and encouraging and that, Lord, there's an answer to all of this. Lord, I pray right now that people settle it. They're going to be back next week in the house of God. Lord, that they're going to get a blueprint, a solution to all of this. We're just not going to curse the darkness. But, Lord, we're going to understand how to implement the light. Thank you for that, Lord. That you called your people winners. More than conquerors. Triumphant in all things. So, Lord, let that spirit be in each and every person here this morning as we release them, Lord. They, there are times they may be discouraged, but they aren't knocked out yet. There are times they may just have their head down, but, Lord, they're not out yet. Let them lift up their heads high. You're doing a great work in each one. And we thank you, Lord, and we're just going to keep pursuing you. We have no king but Jesus. And it's in His name we pray, and all God's people said, and amen, and amen, hallelujah. Come on, encourage one another now before you go. Shake some hands and hug some necks, and you're a part of the army of God. And God bless you. I hope to see some of you Wednesday. We're going to talk about signs and wonders on Wednesday. Don't miss it. God bless you. You're released.